It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording today on Wednesday, November 25th. It is Erev Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving. Most of you will likely hear this show next week after we have celebrated Thanksgiving. I'm personally feeling very wistful about this particular Thanksgiving. I'm having a harder time with this celebration of this American holiday than I did with the more private homebound celebrations of the Jewish holidays. A lot to unpack there about my own family's history of Americanness, and we may even get to that a little bit later. But this particular Thanksgiving is taking place, obviously, as we know, in a pandemic and right after this incredibly divisive American election, and it feels quite wistful. Thanksgiving's history actually is rooted in American divisiveness, not necessarily the original Thanksgiving, which tries to probably falsely impose a story of reconciliation between white people and native people, but actually the first Thanksgiving by presidential proclamation takes place in the middle of the Civil War. Lincoln issuing the Thanksgiving proclamation following the battle at Gettysburg as a means of trying to create a sense of solidarity and community in the middle of our country's most divisive moment. And I have to say, it feels increasingly like the question of our time in America right now and in the Jewish community, raised by both the pandemic and questions of collective responsibility around America, questions raised by the election and the enormous social race, class, and ideological divisions among us. I think the big question is, is there an us? I think as many of us in the Jewish community have wondered this for a long time, is there an us when we talk about Jewish peoplehood? And I think increasingly many of us are wondering, is there an us of Americans, red states or blue states? Are there responsibilities that we bear across difference that make it worth sustaining that sense of us? Do we have to care about and advocate for a larger us, even if it requires taking seriously the 70 or 80 million Americans who voted differently than us with really different stories of America? And I'm really excited to talk about all of these issues of us. We can also talk about them, but primarily today we're going to try to talk about us with one of the people who I know thinks about these questions most and most carefully, my friend and colleague, Dr. Michal Bitone. Michal is a social scientist of American Jews, a fellow in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute, a spiritual leader of our community in Lower Manhattan. So first of all, thank you, Michal, for being here, and thanks especially for being here on the eve of a holiday. I know. Great to be here, Yehuda. Thanks for having me. So part of the news prompt for today was a recent article that you wrote in Jewish Telegraphic Agency. We'll put the article in our show notes on Jewish politics and diversity, in which you noticed that, at least based on exit polls, and we don't know whether that data is good yet, the story of who voted for the president seems to indicate in the recent election in America, 
those of you not following, there was a recent American presidential election. It seems to indicate that the president actually increased his votes among virtually every population except for white people. And that mitigates a story that had been emerging in America about the president as the exemplar of a story of racial brokenness. And you were arguing in your article that the liberal project of diversity ignores in particular that people who come from really different racial or ethnic backgrounds sometimes don't behave the way that the liberal project of diversity makes us think that they would. Or put differently, that Jews who come from different ethnic backgrounds may be diverse. That's one of the terms that you use, but they're not necessarily liberal. So walk us through the argument a little bit that you're making. What do you think is at stake in this argument? What are you flagging for us that's important for us to notice after the election and in particular for the Jewish community? Sure. And this, by the way, these were ideas that I've been thinking a lot about for years. So it's not something particularly new. But as you mentioned, the election did bring into sharp focus and into public conversation some of the myths that many liberals or scholars or progressives have had, particularly a certain understanding of demography as destiny, that as America would become more diverse, we can have this coalition of people of color who would all support the democratic agenda. Uh, And there's been a lot of indicators, not just in terms of exit polls, but if you look at specific counties that are like majority Hispanic, whether it's in Florida or in Texas, where that just simply didn't happen. Um, So there's been something really interesting here for me, which is a moment of reckoning and realization and of clarity that some of the narratives that we were telling are actually not so correct. So as I was reading about these questions more broadly in terms of American minority groups, I realized that something similar has been happening, arguably, in the American Jewish community. That part of the values that we have in many of our institutions, and these are beautiful values, are values that revolve around diversity, around inclusion, around trying to be more representative, trying to figure out where haven't we included people who should be at the table. And these are all well-meaning projects and well-meaning impulses. But I identified a couple of fallacies or blind spots that I think sometimes can put certain hurdles or interfere even with the most well-meaning diversity projects. And I try to focus on them. So I can describe them shortly if you want me to. I spoke about the fact that we often flatten difference either within groups. We assume all the people in a minority group think the same way or are the same way or between different minority groups. So you can speak of a Hispanic Jew from Argentina and an Asian Jew as if they're part of the same group and think of themselves as part of the same group. The second line spot or fallacy that I focused on is that sometimes because the impetus for these diversity projects comes from a progressive or liberal ideology, it often leads us to conflate that with assuming that these minority populations will also hold on to these liberal or progressive ideologies or have these values. And then the third thing that I focused on, and this one I think is the most complicated one and also intriguing in terms of interrogating, is that often the translators that we bring in, that we make visible when we are trying to recognize and incorporate members of minority communities, they tend to be people who can speak in the language or share the ideas of the quote-unquote host communities or majority culture communities. So you end up having authentic people from diverse communities, and I can bring myself as an example, who just happen to not be representative in terms of their ideology. So these were some of the things that I've noticed already for some years and that I wanted to point out and begin a conversation around them. 
Right, so there's kind of a paradox of liberalism, which most manifests in the context of pluralism, which is in service of liberalism and pluralism, we want to make space for all of the members of our community. We want to validate the identities of all of those who we sometimes invisibilize in our communities. But in doing so, you wind up having to become tolerant of viewpoints that you actually consider to be intolerant. But I think it's worse in this case because sometimes the absence of diversity is used as a witness to the community not being consistent with its own liberal values. But if you're talking about making room for people who actually don't share those liberal values, like the project of liberalism kind of unmakes itself. Yeah, and I think you're raising up a lot of questions here. One is actually at the heart of this project, like what would it mean for a real liberal diversity project? And it gets really complicated and I, I don't want to resist any of the complications because can I be pluralistic and include illiberal opinions that then would actually complicate the inclusion of other populations? But what's been happening, I think, not just in our community, but more generally, is that we've actually resisted even asking these questions because we have projects that are a little bit shallow in which we perform diversity in certain ways that still don't fully shatter or bring into question some of our paradigms that are not uncomfortable enough in the way that a true encounter between diverse populations should actually be. So even these big questions that you're asking, we haven't fully gotten to them because of the way that our diversity projects have been structured. And just to be clear, I see a lot of well-meaning, generous intent in this. I'm not saying that this is done intentionally or to erase or make people invisible. I think that that these things are hard and I'm excited that we can ask these questions and learn together. I'm very happy to stay at the totally philosophical level, but I've been told sometimes that that might not be particularly useful in advancing the conversation. Let's get Tachlis for a second, because I think one of the undercurrents of your particular piece was on specifically racial, ethnic, and point of origin diversity in the Jewish community. And the crux of your argument is that many of those Jews who are invisibilized who are non-white Jews in America, let's say. Many of those Jews are invisibilized. The project of diversity or liberalism wants to make room for them, but lo and behold, they don't share the mainstream politics of the liberal white Jewish community. So if we kind of follow the story in the Jewish community over the past year, the racial justice protests in America awaken in the organized Jewish community a sense of urgency around a project that a number of activists have been agitating for for really over a generation. I mean, this goes, Bechol HaShom was started, I think, back in the 1980s, but the Jews of Color field-building efforts have been taking place for a few years to indicate that the Jewish community is not monolithically white, it is not of a particular ethnic or class group, and that the insistence that our community is represented by predominantly white voices is a choice that the Jewish community has been making to invisibilize other populations. So the racial justice protests, I think, have given a tremendous amount of oxygen, I think, in a very healthy way to that project of noticing our diversity. I guess I want to get Tachlis. What happens, however, when those same efforts, it's one thing if those same efforts around racial and ethnic diversity are politically agnostic, we don't care what positions people take. But what happens when those same efforts at promoting a sense of diversity are actually also accompanied by really clear theories about critical race theory, really clear theories about how you rectify 
social and economic class divides. And what happens when, as you've pointed out in your piece, and as we've talked about for many years, Mizrahi Jews, Jews from the former Soviet Union, other Jewish communities that are not represented in the elite classes of the Jewish community simply don't share those politics. Is there a future for the project of racial, ethnic, and point of origin diversity in the Jewish community if the same project is going to wind up introducing the same partisan rancor inside the Jewish community as a result of that work? Yeah, that's a great question, Yehuda. And I think that part of what you're noting is that often as we try to make space for more voices or make new categories, there's complications that come in the wake of that. And part of what we're doing right now is actually advancing the conversation by complicating things even further. So I think there's actually a tension between two different values at play here. One value is the value of trying to be representative, okay? That's a value that actually has to understand the population and try to give voice to whoever it is that is there. And the other value is to actually have an ideology as to what a good society can look like, which can have ideologies around racial justice and things like that. But those, I think, are the values that are in tension right now. And that is, I think, part of what we've been seeing in the Jewish community. Part of what I've been noticing, that some of these efforts end up being seen as speaking for a lot of communities, but aren't always representatives of the views of those communities and those populations. But again, we're only at the beginning of the process. Like you said, it's been the work of a generation that has gotten us to where we are now. And part of the work that I hope we continue to do is actually to investigate and to ask a difficult question and to make sure that even as we raise visibility and make people seen, that we don't erase other people in the process of doing that. And I'll say something else here. Again, I don't want to pretend like any of this is easy. Part of the challenge also has to be with figuring out different reasons why some populations are invisible in the Jewish community and what the dynamics are around that. Why is it that we still have like insular communities who for different reasons, and very often, you know, I reject the claims that lack of representation is always the fault of the quote unquote powerful mainstream. Often it has to do with the agency and the choices of the minority communities, and I can talk about that more. But I think we need to actually realize that different populations have different reasons why they might not be at the table, might not be seen, and that we have to actually undertake a process of deep research understanding before we not only speak on their behalf, but begin to build coalitions that assume that they are there when they might not be there yet. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that question of agency. I would give you two examples that are not about race or ethnicity, but feel to me like they're comparable. One is, I remember last year, back when people used to be in the same place together, when there was the anti-anti-Semitism rally that was organized by UJA Federation and others. It was a march across the Brooklyn Bridge, and it was meant to be in solidarity with Haredi Jews in Brooklyn who were coming under these attacks, and no Haredim showed up. <laughs> so you have this weird performance of solidarity by the non-Haredi community in order to be in solidarity with Haredi Jews who who are not there. And there's a whole bunch of very technical reasons about why they weren't there, who was sponsoring the rally, who was showing up. But it felt to me like a real illustration of the agency question. <laughs> what does solidarity even mean if those who you want to be in solidarity with don't want to be at the same table as you? A more subtle example is for decades, the Jewish community has tried to say, we need to change how we operate in order for the people who are disengaged from Jewish life to be able to have a seat at the table. <laughs> And part of me is like, why don't we respect the fact that people may have opted out of Jewish life? So why do I have to give up 
on the thickness of my own Jewish community and its institutions in order to thin it out so that other people can find their way in who may not want to be here. So I'm curious in your perspective on this, both as a social scientist, but also as someone who believes in peoplehood. (laughs) What happens when it's not that they're not there because we're not making room for them, it's that they're not there because they don't want to be part of the same community. Yeah, and I also think part of the challenge that I'm adding to what you're saying right now is that we tend to notice certain absences more than others, right? So we'll have people who say, well, if your community doesn't look like this, then it's because you're discriminating. But we don't ask the same things about Russian-speaking Jews, who are a huge population that's like super underrepresented, let's say, in our institutions, or often about Orthodox Jews, who are also fairly underrepresented. So I think there's questions both around agency and also why do we make choices around certain populations being visible and not others. But I think that some of this really has to do going back to trying to find ways to have internal dialogue with these populations and actually finding out why aren't you there? Is it because there are barriers that are in front of you and you want to be there? In which case we have a communal mandate to do whatever we have to do. And and we have plenty of examples in which people have felt excluded or discriminated against or they have encountered racism in the Jewish community. And we have to do like a lot of communal work and tikkun, you know, fixing around that. But very often when you speak to people, they'll say, I'm just not interested. <laughs> or, or I have this other particular local community where I want to be spending my time. And that just introduces a whole new set of dynamics and questions around peoplehood. And I'll say one more thing. I think that being inclusive and being representatives are always going to stand in tension with other values. So I think part of what I'm encouraging us to do is actually to be really honest about what's happening here in the different projects that we undertake. What are the costs and the benefits? What are the choices that we are making? And a little bit not pretend like we can have it all, (laughs) that we can be fully representative and also fully represent certain ideologies and not actually have to grapple with the tension and the difficult things that come up when these encounter each other. I think you're right. You're talking basically about competing values, that ideal forms of representation might wind up creating a situation of discomfort because then, okay, now I actually have everybody in the Jewish community showing up at the table, but I have a whole bunch of people in the Jewish community at that same table who have such radically different worldviews and care about things so differently than me that I don't want to be at the same table with them anymore. So now let's try to figure out what's the point of the table. I want to add something to what you're saying. I recently revisited a really good article by a sociologist called Nisim Mizrahi in Israel, studies Mizrahi Jews. And he was reckoning with a question that sociologists in Israel and leaders of NGOs have been thinking for a long time, which is why is it the left really cannot get Mizrahim, who face discrimination from the state, to actually align with them politically. And one of the things that he argues, and uses a different metaphor, but I'll use yours, is that the table itself is problematic. Is that the table itself, the project of trying to have this table with everybody sitting there, and he uses a metaphor of like a nicely manicured garden, (laughs) that that in itself actually contains certain values that stand in tension with the values of the populations that you're trying to bring to your table. So funny, two weeks ago, I interviewed my dad about Saeb Erekat, and I'm just reminded of, I remember when my dad was involved with negotiating the Madrid Peace Conference. I remember one of the big fights that took place between the Israelis and Palestinians in the lead up to the Madrid Peace Conference was the size and shape of the table itself. The actual physical table, not table as metaphor, the actual physical table. And it's an embodiment of what you're describing, which is the very construct 
of the quote-unquote community or the infrastructure in which we want to be able to be really good at representation and diversity, the decision we make around the construct itself oftentimes is indicative of a whole bunch of biases that we already have. And this is, by the way, also what B'nai Lappi said this summer in Identity Crisis. She said, stop using the terminology of inclusion, because when you use the terminology of inclusion, you indicate that you're there, you're holding the space, and now I'm going to make room for someone else. I'm going to include them. But if you actually, if you want to think about what radical inclusion is ultimately about, which requires different terminology, you have to get out of the construct of what you think the community is and be ready for it to look totally different when actually people join you around whatever table emerges. Right. Or I would say another option is be ready to name the fact that you're not fully inclusive. Because I care a lot about using your metaphor, what my table looks like and, and what values I really care about. And I think part of what the work we have to do is to be honest of who's not sitting around this table and why, as opposed to kind of pretend like if we include XYZ people, now everybody is here. So I think part of what I'm grappling with is how do we have intellectual honesty around the choices that we've made and who we're including? How do we have the humility to talk about the people that we don't actually know very well and to actually name that lack of knowledge? And how do we honestly just live with some of these difficult questions and not fully resolving them? Hi, my name is Alana Steinhain and I'm Scholar-in-Residence and Director of Faculty at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. I want to tell you about a series of talks I'll be giving over the next few months called Talmud from the Balcony. Talmud from the Balcony is an occasional series that exposes big ideas, questions, and issues motivating rabbinic discussions. Our theme for the upcoming sessions will be Beyond the Limits of Law, Repairing the Fabric of Society. As a society, we rely upon unspoken norms of behavior and responsibility, and yet few of these norms are legally enforceable. I'll be delving into the ways the rabbis address this gap between law and character. To register for one or more of the talks, go to our website, shalomhartman.org, and look in our Hartman at Home calendar for Talma from the Balcony. Thank you and looking forward. Let's talk about the trade-off, the values trade-off, because that to me feels very, very urgent right now, especially in the American context, the whole question about healing our divides. Americans are hopelessly polarized, the argument goes, and we basically have two options. Do I try to heal the divides between myself and others, or do I try to beat them? Do I try to win? And in some ways, the, what we've been talking about inclusion and representation and diversity are the types of activities that one does in which you say, what unites us is more important than what divides us. And we are a stronger society if we take into consideration all of us as part of this story. Whereas the counter move, the one that has a different calculus about the choices that's being made says, okay, I, I understand that it's important for me to take seriously If I'm an East Coast, I guess, cosmopolitan elite, it's important for me to take seriously the other human beings in America who vote very differently, who live in very different socioeconomic, religious, or otherwise orientations. But ultimately, the job is not on me to actually make space within my consciousness for them. If the extent I want to understand them, it's because I want to win at the polls. So let's map that out to the Jewish community context. So this whole question of representation, being aware of who's in our community, What drives that? What's the Jewish value that's motivating that? 
precisely because there's a counter argument that says, don't I want to simply win in the marketplace of ideas and ideals? I don't want to lose what my community institutions and their values are ultimately about by having to compromise politically with all sorts of people who I would rather not see and not have to engage with. I'm going to rephrase your question a little bit as to me what's at stake here in this conversation in terms of our communal politics and also more broadly in terms of the conversation we're having in America. And I'll say that somebody who really like the people in my life, half of them are Trump voters and the other half are like Biden supporters. I voted for Biden. I wasn't shy about it. It wasn't a difficult choice for me. But at the same time, so many of the relationships that I'm in, I think make me look at people a little bit differently than people who maybe only have voters of certain stripe in their life. I guess I would say a couple of reactions, Yehuda, to what you're asking. One is that I personally, as somebody who cares about liberal democracy, I don't think there's another way aside from persuasion. I just don't think that we can, quote unquote, win, especially the way that our country is set up in terms of the electoral system. I haven't been convinced by any argument that if we have the orientation of let's just win over the other side, that we'll be able to do it. And no, I'm not talking right now about what's moral, what's right, what feels really good. I'm talking right now about what's strategic as somebody who loves this country and wants to maintain it as much as possible under super not ideal conditions. So that's just one value that's very much at stake for me. And the other thing for me is like a lot of people look at discourse of unity or healing as somehow enabling something really bad or something really evil. I don't see it like that. I distinguish between political leaders and voters. I don't think that our political identities are the end all and be all of who we are. I also think that I'm fairly attuned to the way that social media and the news are shaping our understandings of the world, which actually helps me think more generously of people who disagree with me, because I think, well, actually, they have a totally different set of facts in front of them. Now, how to deal with that is a different question, but it does help me say that maybe if I was watching only Fox News or whatever, maybe I would actually agree with them and I wouldn't think of my choices as unethical. I might even think of the other side as unethical. So I guess for me, it's a combination of both having human relationships with really good people who disagree with me politically, of understanding that the source of data that we're getting right now just ends up crafting different epistemological realities. And also just like my mom always told me when I was young, Michal, don't be right, be smart. And right now, I think we have to resist the impulse to only want to be right. And there's something here about, like, no one's going anywhere. <laughs> the millions of people who vote for the opposite political party, they're not going anywhere. They're fellow Americans. We are in the same country, and our fates are intertwined in different ways. So as long as this is the reality in front of us, I just don't see another way. I don't see an alternative that lets us continue being America. I understand the anger. I felt it myself, especially at, I don't want to get into like, you know, specifics politically, but I get the impulse. I just, I just don't see it leading anywhere that is in service of the Republic. I think there's another argument, Michal, which you didn't get at because it's hard to formulate as strong an intellectual view of it, although I've learned this from you over the years around group solidarity and continuity as being not morally contingent arguments, but moral arguments in and of themselves. And I think another argument that I would use if I were you about to make this case is as simple as kin. They are also your family. And that has to turn into not just because of my family, the people I have to tolerate, 
but that I have a degree of obligation, which is a moral obligation, a commitment to family, because very few of us are Peter Singer ethicists who believe that family is an immorally compromised category. We don't think of that. We know that family relationships actually matter in defining our moral world. So I think that has to be a part of the argument also. And when mapped onto the Jewish community, the reason we care about the Jews who we oftentimes don't see in our communities enough, because either we have racial and ethical blind spots, or because we don't have those blind spots, but we don't want their politics, but we're actually obligated to them because they're part of our family. Now, that's a countercultural view to many liberal American Jews who are suspect about those extrapolated family claims that we're supposed to be loyal to other Jews. But I think it has to be part of the moral conversation here. Yeah, although I think it's hard to have it if it's only a moral conversation and if it's not something you experience. So I know that for me, it's been like very powerful whenever I've had a family members, for example, who had to go to the hospital for different things. And you have this Satmar Hasidim groups that basically come to you and take care of you for the whole time you're there. I benefited so much. I had an apartment. I was given food. I was made to feel like at really difficult moments in my life, there's somebody who's going to be there for me who's never going to ask me what I think or how I vote. So I think that experiencing that in the flesh makes the family metaphor not only a theoretical and not only something that you can argue is used for different purposes, but actually something that you experience viscerally. And that definitely is part of my own approach to Jewish peoplehood and also my own theology and most of the commitments that I hold dear. Yeah. Peoplehood is an easier experience to feel than it is to describe. So it's easier to build up a theory of Jewish peoplehood once you have experience that sense of being connected to an expanded family than when I'm trying to convince you that other people who you have no relationship to are actually your family. Exactly. And we've talked for many years also about the kind of inherent correlation between peoplehood and pluralism. If you actually care about some notion of the Jewish people, you have to be willing to tolerate and maybe even embrace all of the differences that are within our people as a condition of it, except with one exception. This is kind of the crux of the problem. What happens when for so many American Jews... The thing that was so important about peoplehood for a long time was that it was the solidarity that kept us safe. What happens if you're at a place in which American Jews on the right and on the left no longer believe that it's their relationship with other Jews that are going to keep them safe? It's their relationship with other Americans who share their political values. Can peoplehood survive that? If you have your Trump voting relatives who believe that Biden-Harris voters are playing fast and loose with America's security and Israel's security, and therefore jeopardizing the position of Jews. And the majority of liberal American Jews believe that the president is awakening or inviting white supremacist ideologies and making Jews unsafe. Does the bond of peoplehood, which makes for a belief in pluralism, can it survive that fear that other Jews themselves are the ones who are making me unsafe? And is it worth pushing for it? Yeah, so I, I think in general, when you think about group solidarity and group cohesion, the ability to agree on who your enemy is, is like the most important thing. So I'm basically agreeing with you that that sort of division and argument is perhaps the most difficult thing to grapple with in terms of Jewish peoplehood. But I do have one caveat. I think the fact that we're disagreeing so much about this is good news, at least for those of us who don't want anti-Semitism, right? Because the, the fact that, not really, there's something here that when the anti-Semites are at the gate in such big numbers, that you actually stop disagreeing so much. So yeah, I'm just adding that caveat because I don't know if what's happening right now is always going to remain the case. I guess that's what I'm saying. 
God willing, we should only have good news and safety. But part of the arguments that we have right now, I think are fairly theoretical. And I think that we should name that. I don't know if it doesn't feel that theoretical to me, Michal. When you have a situation where a whole bunch of Jews, you know, are looking at frameworks like the Women's March or other progressive spaces arguing that it is through multi-ethnic, multi-faith coalitions that Jews ensure their own safety and that Jews participate in the safety of other vulnerable groups. And then other Jews who are multi-ethnic view those activities as endangering the welfare of Jews. That's the exact problem, because now the very thing that some Jews are doing to keep Jews safe, other Jews view as endangering them. And in reverse, it goes back to what we were talking about before, those Jews in multi-faith, multi-ethnic spaces are going to start saying to themselves, the people I want to see in my diversity are people of color who identify with the same political goals here, but I don't really have room in there for Cuban-American Jews who voted for Trump. And then suddenly nobody is consistent then, either in our commitments to peoplehood or in our commitments to a sense of our responsibility to see diversity in our community. So I think 100% for some people it will manifest in this way that you cannot really have both. But I'm going to actually use myself as an example. I wrote an op-ed back when there was a lot of noise around the Women's March, and I actually spoke of myself and of my identity. And I said that even though there were a lot of Jewish women of color marching and organizing around this, that I wouldn't go, and I said why. And the thing is that some of those people marching are friends and colleagues of mine, and I communicated with them about it. And this actually goes back to my point. We disagreed over this in exactly the radical ways that you are mentioning. But the quote-unquote threat from the Women's March of going or abstaining from it is still theoretical enough that we can still think of ourselves as friends and even respect each other within the context of the Jewish community, uh, that we can be in relationship with each other. Now, this might not be the case with everything, and as examples get more extreme or more complicated or more difficult, then we might lose this ability. But I'm not sure that we've reached the point of no return. I still think that at least amongst those of us who want to build those bridges, and not everybody does, let's be honest, but those of us who want to build these bridges, that we still have the possibilities of talking to each other, try to understand each other's dreams and nightmares. And honestly, we still have the privilege to understand the choices of marching and not marching and not see it in such like life and death sort of terms that are going to negate the possibility of any relationship. See, one of the things that you and I have in common is that I think both of us are kind of skeptical of teams. That ideology is a transactional activity as opposed to being like the flag under which we're comfortable marching. There's very few times when I've shown up really at protests. And by the way, I'm aware of my own limitations on this. I know the problematics of it. I also know that there have been moments in the last couple of years, I showed up to the Brooklyn March on anti-Semitism. I showed up to Black Lives Matter marches over the summer because there was, at a certain point, no justifiable way to either be human or much less a parent and to pretend that you could just keep sitting them out because you're not going to like something that one person says, this speaker or that sign in any of these contexts. But I do think that both of us are kind of running up against a tide, mm -hmm. which is that these kind of ideological polarizations require of people to make team choices. And that feels very hard. And then if you want to win... <laughs> Right, again, those who are hanging around the margins saying, well, I agree with this part, but I don't agree with that part, become liabilities to the movement as opposed to what we would like to think of them as being, you know, assets. Yeah, I mean, yes, the way that I say it is that I'm allergic to orthodoxies, even as somebody who identifies with parts of the orthodox community. I'm very much with you that I'm allergic to ideological orthodoxies, and I agree with you that it's a funny place to be with this tide of just group ideologies, not just in our community, but across America and across the world, in which 
the desire for nuance, for compromise, for understanding and for complexity is increasingly called immoral by people who disagree with you. The only thing that I'll say that to me was one small silver lining out of like a very tumultuous and difficult election season is I think there's large numbers of voters who might not be vocal about the culture wars, either within our communities or in the country, that actually want to resist making everything into a political war and want to resist having this sort of like moral purity test. And you know, Yehuda, I keep thinking actually about the fact that if most of us who want to resist is thinking around teams and orthodoxies, that if we, and I'll speak personally, if I remain silent or quiet, then the loud voices are only the team leaders who are saying who's allowed to be there and who isn't. So I think there's a lot of work to do. And the more that people speak up against the tide, the more that we might realize it's not actually a tide. It's just the more visible or loud tide on Twitter as opposed to social life or communal life. A couple of last short questions. First is, any practical suggestion items to someone who reads your piece in JTA and says, huh, my field of vision around who I see in my community or who's included is more narrow than I would like it to be. You've helped people to broaden their field of vision. You've complicated the quote-unquote diversity story. One thing, person runs a Jewish organization, runs a synagogue. What's one practical thing you want them to do where they might think about representation differently, might do something a little bit differently as a result? Yeah, I'm going to answer your question, but not too directly. I think that what's needed right now is not just in terms of individuals who want to do things, because there's certain adaptive challenges that we have as a community. There's very little scholarship about some of the populations that I was speaking about, like Sephardic, Middle Eastern Jews, and there aren't that many individuals who have fit in both worlds, who can both speak about their more insular communities and also, quote-unquote, be able to speak to the mainstream Jewish institutions. So I actually think that we need communal investment in this. I receive so many phone calls and emails from really well-meaning people who just tell me, okay, what books should I assign? Who should I invite to speak? And sometimes I have good suggestions and I'm always happy to work with people. But often I just think we have a lot of work to do. And this is not to minimize your question. It's just to actually recognize the fact that there are some big changes that need to happen. Yeah, well, I understand that a former NYU doctoral student wrote an excellent dissertation about Syrian Jews in America and probably the only ethnographic study of its kind about a Mizrahi Jewish community in America. So one day that book will hopefully... I call them Sephardic Yehuda. But one day the book will come out, yes. Great. There's a lot that I really wanted to talk to you more about. So you'll come back in Identity Crisis again to talk about the whole business of counting Jews and social science. There's so much there. But last question for today, Michal, you're a first generation American. Can you tell me a little about Thanksgiving in your house or for you personally? Is this a holiday for you? Is it a holiday for your family? What does it look like and feel like? Yeah, so I think it's actually going to feel like a holiday for the first time this year because my son, Ness, who's four years old, he goes to the Manikantor Center, a Jewish school on the Lower East Side, but most of the population isn't Jewish. And he's come back home the past couple of days talking about Turkey and Thanksgiving. So I was texting my husband, Sian, earlier, and I asked him if he can pick up turkey and looking up recipes to actually figure out what am I doing. So there's something actually that feels pretty American about this holiday for me, perhaps the first holiday that I'm going to be doing something. And that also feels a little bit redemptive just in terms of my son being the one to initiate it. Um, and maybe just the sort of symbol for the future that is full of possibilities that we cannot imagine right now. I love that. And I can guarantee you that your son is not the first American 
to be born in America and then to bring his parents into this ritual. That's the whole second, third, fourth generation American story. You know, I grew up with Thanksgiving as really a genuinely Jewish and religious holiday. And it's a little strange to not to not have our whole family together. But as the fourth generation American on all sides, it runs pretty deep. So it's pretty powerful to see it taking root in your family as well. Well, thanks so much for listening to our show this week. And special thanks to my guest, Michal Piton. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David Zvi Kalman and Dan Friedman and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy. And thanks for listening.